This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome to another episode of In the Arena. I'm Jonathan Stein. Our guest today is Andrea Headley, a UC Presidential Postdoctoral Fellow for 2018 here at the Goldman School of Public Policy and an incoming professor at the Policy School at The Ohio State University. Her research focuses on criminal justice and specifically the relationship between police and the communities they serve. Andrea, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. One of the themes of In the Arena has been that the scholars and the researchers and the advocates that we talk to often have a deeply personal connection with the work that they do or the research they're investigating. They have something inside of them that motivates them to do the work that they're doing. Do you feel like that's true for you as well? Yeah, so I actually definitely feel that that is true. I've always been interested, just generally speaking, in doing work that made a difference for solving public problems. But the criminal justice aspect of my research in particular um, was rooted in me from a very young age. I thought I was going to be an attorney, so I'd be like you, right? Um, and I thought particularly I was going to be a public defender. Uh-huh. And I wanted to be a public defender because of my family and friends that I've seen that had involvement with the criminal justice system and the experiences that they shared with me, their experiences that I witnessed, and I thought that I can, you know, make a difference. It was when I went to undergraduate that I got involved in research, and I realized that research can be another avenue to affect change, not just um, becoming an attorney or a lawyer. And so that really propelled my research trajectory. And in terms of policing in particular, when I started my doctoral program, I actually thought that I was going to research incarceration or juvenile detention centers. But a year after I started my program is when Ferguson happened, so in 2014. And it really put a lot of spotlight on the tensions between police and communities. And it also showed the need for research to try and help to solve some of the problems that we were seeing in the community. So So let's let's dig into your research. And let's start with um, a topic that Ferguson surfaces, right? You've studied cities that have high levels and low levels of police community conflict. Mm -hmm. What are some of the factors that determine whether a city and a police department have high levels or low levels of that conflict? Yeah, so in one part of my research, I was able to try and understand what the community socioeconomic characteristics were that were correlated with the high or low police citizen conflict. And what I found was that communities that had higher poverty, higher unemployment, higher violent crime, and higher female-headed housing levels also had really high levels of police citizen conflict and that those communities that had low police citizen conflict were usually associated with um, higher median income, higher median age, higher levels of owner-occupied housing. And so I think the community characteristics really do make a difference in trying to understand police citizen conflict, but I wouldn't go as far as to say that it predicts, you know, police citizen conflict. Right. So what are some of the characteristics of police departments where there are low levels of police community conflict? So what my research found was that 
In terms of police-citizen conflict, when we're looking at things like police use of force, civilian complaints about um, police officers, assaults against officers, that there are certain factors that are correlated. And in particular, my research has found that the police departments that had much higher levels of racial representation, meaning that they had a lot of people of color on the police department as it pertained to the level of um, people of color in the community, and police departments that also were engaged in community partnerships, those departments had much lower levels of police use of force. Also, what my research found was that police departments that had higher percentages of officers that were dedicated to community policing roles or problem-solving roles had much lower levels of civilian complaints as well. So in terms of what police departments can do, I think that it points to, one, the role of community policing and community partnerships, but also the role of racial representation and hiring people of color and having a diverse police force. And just for our watchers who might not know, can you define community policing and what it means for a police officer to be in a problem-solving role as opposed to something else? Right. So what it means for an officer to be in a problem-solving role means that that police officer is specifically dedicated to engaging the community in positive enforcement activities. I mean, positive non-enforcement activities, meaning that they're not necessarily responding to a call for service or an allegation about criminal activity, but rather they're going out and meeting with community stakeholders, they're attending community events, they're, they're walking the beat, for instance, and building relationships, and that's what their role is primarily for. Your research identifies solutions. In addition to identifying these characteristics of um, police departments that have high levels and low levels of community conflict, um, you also identify solutions. And you have a number of organizational solutions, organizational reforms, also some other things that are more about the individual police officer. And one thing I found interesting is that um, your research calls for increased soft skills for police officers. And soft skills are not something people traditionally think of as prerequisites for being a cop. Um, But your research shows that actually they can be critically important. Right. So that was actually one of the findings that surprised me a little bit when I was doing this research. So I went into this really thinking that the organization mattered. And so when I was doing a lot of this research, I was trying to specifically focus on the organizational, administrative, managerial factors of police departments. And what I found was that, yes, the organization may matter, but also it's the individual that matters as well, right? The individual police officer. And that's really where the soft skills came into play. And two soft skills in particular that were important were the communication skills of the officer and then an officer's character. So in regards to the communication skills of an officer, I would hear officers often say things like, community relations is communication, right? It's about winning the community over one community member at a time or one incident at a time. And I think that's really in alignment with a lot of the procedural justice literature that has come out about how you engage with um, civilians, how you can talk civilians down, how you can de-escalate, et cetera. And then in terms of character, often what was brought up was the respect that an officer has for the community, whether or not they're empathetic, they're caring, they're compassionate. And community members were often the ones to talk about these things. And they would often suggest that the character that an officer has can be displayed in their actions and that when there is not respect or empathy or care and concern, that the community loses trust in the police department and that hinders police community relations. 
So let's talk more about body cameras. Okay. Um, your research on body cameras has shown, found a number of things. One is they often result in better resolutions of incidents between um, police officers and uh, members of the public, fewer incidents of violence, for example. It doesn't result in substantial depolicing. Right. Um, but also it increases officer skepticism over time. And over time, a number of officers, some officers, begin to not use or not turn on their body cameras. So it's a bit of a mixed bag there. Um, and there are some reformers who say it's a Band-Aid on a much larger problem. So in your view, body cameras, legitimate reform, Band-Aid, or something else? Yeah, so I actually think the body-worn cameras are a tool to help us to get to a place where we can have relationships between police and the community that are built on you know, transparency and accountability and things like that. I don't think that it is the end-all, be-all, or the panacea to really solve some of the underlying issues that have resulted or that have been brought to light recently with police and minority communities. Um, but I do think that it is a, it's a tool that can be used to help the situation. And I think right now it's too soon to say whether or not body cameras as a whole are having the intended impacts because of a lot of the research has produced mixed findings, particularly because of the variations in policy context in which the body cameras have been deployed. So different departments are deploying cameras and have different types of policies on cameras. So when you're trying to compare the, the findings, it's hard to have any conclusive evidence. So I wouldn't you know, shut the door on body cameras just yet, but I think that it's a tool that has to be coupled with other accountability mechanisms and other reform mechanisms as well. So uh, situating body cameras in a larger context of accountability mechanisms, right? Um, one of the things that reformers um, and policymakers hear from law enforcement and police officers is in the face of body cameras, increased scrutiny, et cetera, we're going to depolice. Right. Can you explain what depolicing is and whether it actually happens when you um, have additional oversight or accountability over um, police departments and law enforcement? Yeah, so I think that's a great question because that is definitely a narrative that we've heard a lot and that was one of the things that the police department that I was working with actually said a lot. Depolicing, also referred to often as the Ferguson effect, is essentially a concept that came about after Ferguson because of the rise in crime. In particular, we saw rises in homicide rates across a variety of cities in the United States. And so the narrative is that Officers are not necessarily doing their jobs as effectively or as proactively as they once was, once were because of the tensions that have been present between police and communities, the assaults against law enforcement officers that have happened in places like Dallas, for instance. And so police officers are shrinking back due to this anti-policing sentiment. And so crime rate is going up. Right. So that's the general idea behind the notion of depolicing. In regards to whether or not this is a thing or if this is really happening, I think that depends on what type of indicators you're looking at. And when we're looking at qualitative or perceptual um, accounts from officers, for instance, there is real and legitimate concerns about them going above and beyond and being very proactive and doing a lot of the self-initiated activities such as pedestrian or traffic stops. However, they often do say that, you know, they're still responding to calls and doing the things that they have to do, but not necessarily going above and beyond. And they say that because there's a low morale, there's lack of motivation, there's lack of, of enthusiasm to do their job, there's fear of punishment, et cetera. Because of all the scrutiny, accountability mechanisms right. and so on. Exactly. And I and I bring that up because I think it's important to validate officers' concerns and perceptions because the psychological literature does show that 
the perceptions and attitudes can impact behavior. But when you look at quantitative studies or quantitative indicators that try and see, well, are police officers really not doing their jobs, right? There's some differences that we see. So for instance, in Baltimore, after the Freddie Gray, the death of Freddie Gray, what we saw was that police may have pulled back on their proactive policing activities, and there was a spike in homicides that was immediately following you know, the years after the Freddie Gray incident. However, in places like Milwaukee, after the beating of people of color, in particular a black man, what we saw there was that 911 calls dropped significantly immediately following those incidents. And when you're looking at both of these incidents as it pertains to depolicing as a whole, what this really points to is that it may not necessarily be all on the police shrinking back from their responsibilities or or not necessarily being as proactive, but it may also be in terms of the community not calling the police as much, right? So, and it's important to really get at the mechanisms by which this phenomena, if occurring, how it's occurring, why it's occurring, when it's occurring, and so forth. So you've talked to innumerable police officers. Um, Body cameras won't work if they're turning them off. Accountability mechanisms won't work if they're choosing to uh, withdraw from uh, the community interactions they used to have. Um, as the qualitative research suggests, maybe not the quantitative research, how do you implement, how can policymakers implement uh, reforms, accountability measures, um, oversight, without encountering the sort of negative impacts that we're talking about that actually hurt the cause, that hurt the cause of public safety? Right. Yeah. So I think that takes a real collaborative effort with police department and community stakeholders. I don't think that it can be all on the police department to, you know, employ a body camera program without getting community input, without having a community oversight board that's able to see, you know, what's happening internally in the police department. And likewise, sometimes there are civilian oversight boards that are completely detached from the police department, and then they can't get access to the type of data that they need. So I think that there's really a need for an effort that's collaborative that works together, not so much that there's anything, you know, funny going on, but to the extent that they can provide checks and balances on each other. But I also think that one of the things that we realized in the body camera study that I conducted was that officers being regularly monitored by their supervisors to ensure compliance was important. And as soon as compliance, um, as soon as officers were not being regularly monitored to see if they were complying or what have you, that's when compliance dropped. And I think that alludes to the point that there needs to be someone that's watching, someone that's making sure these activities are actually being conducted in the way that they're intended to be conducted, at least until it becomes normal and everyday behavior. Um, So let's talk about a a slightly different subject, um, profiling by proxy. So profiling by proxy is when um, the police are are in a position where they have to respond to a call um, made by a community member where the community member themselves are racially profiling. And so we've seen innumerable examples of this in the news, but a young black man is eating a sandwich in a campus plaza and someone says, why is that person on the campus? Um, not realizing that they're a graduate student um, and calls the police to investigate. That's a hypothetical I made up, but you could. There's countless examples of real life um, um, instances of this. So, I think if someone is, let's say, 
not aware of um, histories of, of race and interactions between communities of color and police, they might say to themselves, well, there's an easy solution to profiling by proxy. The police officer arrives, realizes that this is nonsense. They admonish the caller for wasting their time and probably being a little bit racist and go about their day. I think that assumption that that can be the easy, quick, simple, harmless solution to the situation misunderstands the role that police officers and police departments have played in sort of enforcing racial codes over the course of American history. I'm wondering if you can respond to the well-intended community member who says to themselves, why aren't the police in a position to simply diffuse the situation, sniff out the racism, and resolve the situation positively for everybody? Right. So I think you hit it on the head. And I think that that response really ignores the complex and often um, conflicted relationship that has existed throughout time between disadvantaged communities, people of color, and law enforcement. It, it misunderstands the, um, the history that has over-policed communities of color. It misunderstands the issues around police brutality and, and aggressive policing practices that have been um, displayed in various communities. And I think it also misunderstands the notions between uh, assuming that there's criminality that's associated with certain groups of people, certain races or ethnicities or, or religious um, groups or what have you. I also think that that statement, although well-intended, one, takes away the responsibility of the person who's calling. And I think as civilians, we have a responsibility as well to make sure that we're calling about legitimate concerns and legitimate behaviors and are questioning ourselves. And it also assumes that the same biases that are present in the caller are absent in the police officer. And it's not to say that that's not true, but we don't know that that's the case until after the situation has already escalated. Oftentimes what we've seen is that it takes very small situations to lead to very escalated situations, and it happens very quickly. And last, the last thing I'll say about this is that it also ignores the fact that there may be an inherent fear in the person who was the police was called on because of their prior experiences with police officers, because what they've seen on the TV or what have you, and how that fear may then impact their response when the police the police officer shows up. Right. So. I think the first question that a policy analyst um, or somebody with a policy brain is going to ask is, what's the intervention? What is the policy solution to policing by proxy um, or uh, uh, um, profiling by proxy? But some of your research shows that it's actually not legislation that's going to solve the problem. It's something softer. Right. Yeah. So I think that Honestly, for this issue of profiling by proxy, there's always things that we can say have policy implications, right? But I think really to get at the root of the problem, it would be forcing community members, people who call the police often, ourselves to ask the hard questions, right? Ask yourself, why are you calling the police, right? Is there criminal activity being exhibited that you're seeing, right? Is there a threat or a danger? Are you calling the police because your own fears are... are also associated with certain demographic groups or certain behaviors by certain demographic groups that are not inherently criminal, but just don't fit well with what you think should be displayed. Asking yourself, if the police come, is it going to make the situation better? Asking yourself, what, how would I feel if this was a member of my family? You know, is, a, is the police 
becoming an appropriate response. And I think if we can ask ourselves these tough questions and really get to the root of it, that can help, hopefully, to eliminate some of the problems that we're seeing. I will say, though, that there is a role that policy can play, particularly as it pertains to the role of 911 dispatchers and how information is received from the callers, right? So making sure that there's appropriate training and protocol to ask probing questions when someone is calling the police to try and get at the root of the problem, and then how that information is then transmitted to officers. But I know 911 dispatchers is a, is a bag in, it, in itself, and, and there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, but I do think that there could be a role for policy to play, um, but I don't necessarily know that's the first role, at least. Right. So let's talk about two big picture questions here as we begin to wrap up. The first is, some of your research has found that if um, you put body cameras on police officers, some portion of them are going to turn those body cameras off. Another has found that when considering complaints against police officers, the race of the complainant makes a difference. And African-Americans who complain about police officers are much more likely to have their complaint dismissed um, than other uh, complainants. Um, Also, you found that... um, if you have more, as we discussed earlier, if you have more people of color on the police force, it's going to improve relationships with communities of color. Do you ever find yourself thinking, I'm using data to find things that any community member in East Oakland could have told me or anyone if we had taken the time to ask? I'm sure you do. Right. And can you speak to the importance of data and research that validates community narratives when some of those community narratives go ignored? Right. Yeah. So I actually remember um, hearing a scholar give a keynote and the scholar said essentially that scholarship is not about finding truth. It's about providing evidence to underscore truth. Right. And it's this idea that scholarship really just confirms what the community already knows or seeks to at least understand. It doesn't always confirm. So scholarship seeks to understand what the community may or may not already know. Right. And I think that quote really resonates to this, what you're talking about, what you're asking about. But I think data is important and research is important for a variety of reasons, right? So the first one is that it really, like you said, it validates community members' experiences. Oftentimes it can help to inform decisions and and inform solutions. It may shed light on the magnitude of the issue, right? So maybe there's a couple community experiences, but we don't know how large this problem is. Or on the other end, maybe this is just a you know, very unique problem for a very specific group of people or a specific street in the community, and it's not as widespread as maybe a narrative may say it is, right? And I think both of those are important to be able to tease out you know, what's really going on, right? What the mechanisms by which whatever problem or whatever phenomena is being exhibited, what are the mechanisms by which it's actually you know, occurring or happening to get to some of the policy solutions? And some people love data. Some people love community narratives, and I think it's about knowing what to use to which audience to try and get whatever solution or change or whatever argument you're trying to put forth, and I think that is really key. I always think about um, a story I read uh, about an individual who had um, uh, cognitive and mental disabilities who um, lived in the back of a convenience store that was, um, he lived there basically because of the grace of the convenience store owner who knew he was marginally housed and needed a place to stay and, and, and did some odd jobs around the, the convenience store in order to make a little bit of money. And he was sort of on the margins in many ways. 
And the police department, in order to meet their quotas, were arresting him like 20, 30 times every couple months just to get the numbers and then they'd release him back and they'd come and just pick him up the next day and it was always some new reason. Um, and it was sort of a tragic story. Um, that individual isn't going to build a narrative in advocacy for himself and for his community that's going to change the local police department or change policing on the whole. It's, it's, and frankly, other members of that same community aren't going to disrupt their lives in a way that is going to like force reform on the police department. It's, it's not something they should have to do. Um, but those stories in combination with, um, as you're saying, in combination with um, research that maybe has purchase uh, among policymakers, among lawmakers, among police chiefs, and so on, put all that together, and now all of a sudden you have maybe something that, that brings positive change. So right. last question, the biggest question, I think, in your field. Um, we've talked about what uh, results in positive um, uh, police community relations, what characteristics can result in negative um, police community relations. What is the ideal state? What is it that through all the reform, the legislation, the scrutiny and the oversight, what is it that we're trying to achieve when it comes to policing and the communities that police serve? Yeah, so that's always the million dollar question. Um, and I think the ideal state for police community relations is one that's symbiotic in nature, right? It's based on mutuality and mutual respect, mutual trust, mutual cooperation. Um, and it it's one in which the police and the community are really working collaboratively together, right? And it's this idea that the community essentially, right, are the owners of government, right? And they're the ones that, that are supposed to at least, right, be directing how they want their community services to be delivered or what have you, policing being one of those services. And in my opinion, and based on the research that I've done, I think when you're talking about police and communities working together in particular, there's three different types of ways that police and communities can work together. And the first way is what we often see, which is police maybe showing up at community events, right? Maybe a certain designated officer who's a community policing officer or the public relations officer will show up and participate in certain events and be present in the community, right? And I think that's great and that's needed. I don't think that's necessarily enough. The, the second thing is what we've seen as police, and this is, I think, rarely seen, but it's still evidenced in some places where police departments open up their doors to the community to come in, right? So in Hartford, what they would do is they would have a public comp stat, which they would have a day where the community members can come in and they can go over all of their crime statistics, they can go over the different patrol activities that they're doing to really show the, the community, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, this is where we are. Likewise, when they had a, a high-profile incident, they would call community leaders in and debrief the community leaders immediately after and say, you know, this is what happened, our officers did this, this is the video we have, this is whatever, whatever, right? And so that's really different than just the police showing up at events, right? It's bringing the community member into the police department. And then the last thing is where the police department and the community identify problems together and work to build solutions, right? So whether there is a certain community, um, a neighborhood within the community or a certain group or block within the community that's really causing problems or maybe needs a little extra, you know, attention or what have you, 
it's the police and the community coming up together to see what is the best approach for this. How can we best deal with this? And listening to both sides rather than the police thinking, you know, let's just over police and aggressively police this, you know, behavior or rather than the community trying to get what they call street justice and going to take things into their own, own hands. So thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Andrea, I appreciate you being here. Um, Andrea Headley is a 2018 UC presidential postdoctoral fellow and is soon to be an assistant professor at The Ohio State University. Thanks for tuning in to In the Arena.